So tonight, we're going to take a look at Psalm 1. And remember, before we read this, or as I'm reading this to you, Psalm 1 is the preface to the rest of the 150 Psalms. And it's the anatomy of a spiritual death spiral or a spiritual awakening. That's what Psalm 1 really holds before you. It's a picture of someone's soul in a death spiral and then someone's soul being reawakened by God. That's what Psalm 1 is about. So why don't you stand up and I'll read Psalm 1 for us. This is the word of the Lord. It's authoritative. And who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers or mockers. But his delight, it's in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. That man will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Or literally those words, he will be like a tree transplanted by streams of water. Which yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff, or in our context, like a tumbleweed, which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked won't stand in the judgment. Sinners won't uh, sit in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Not just like intellectually he knows it, but he loves it. He delights in it. He is present with the righteous in the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, bringing us back after five weeks apart from each other. Thank you for all of our new friends here tonight. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we would grow and bear fruit in season uh, to your pleasure. We pray, Father, that um, you would pluck us out of the fruitless ways that we live our lives. We pray that our hopes would be recentered in you. You are the only one who can make us alive and fruitful. That's not something, that's not a lesson that we can hear and apply and do on our own. We are totally dependent upon you. And we know that you love to do that very thing. And so would you come and do that tonight even? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, for as helpful as Siri is, she's gotten a lot of people into some big trouble over the years. The most uh, famous and funniest probably uh, is Michael Scott. Did you see that Office episode many moons ago? Uh, when, when Dwight and Michael are on, their, on a business trip and he's listening to the GPS voice tell him where to go and you know what happens next. Uh, the GPS voice or Siri is saying, take a right, take a right. And Dwight's saying, no, she's talking about the road up there, not now. And Michael's like, the machine knows what she's saying. She knows what she's saying. I'm going to take a right. And so he takes a right and it's onto a boat ramp into a pond And so they're frantically uh, trying to get out of the car uh, as it fills with water and goes underneath. One of the starting pitchers for the Chicago Cubs a few years ago missed his opening game and the opening innings of that game uh, because when he typed into his phone, Chicago uh, Stadium, instead of taking him to Wrigley Field where the game was happening, it took him to the old Cubs practice stadium 
which unfortunately for him was on the other side of the city. And so he is literally listening to the game that he's supposed to be pitching on his radio as he's racing across town to get there. And uh, more closer to home, when I lived in Philly, um, I never realized that there were actually two Cornerstone Presbyterian churches until 10 minutes before my good friend's wedding when I pulled up to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church where my phone had taken me. And the parking lot was empty, the lights were off, the doors were locked. And I'm like, wait a second, where is everybody? And then I looked back to my phone and realized that Siri had not taken me to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church where the wedding was, but to the one that was closer to my house. And there was no possible way I could get to that wedding in time uh, on the other side of the city afterwards. Um, And I missed his wedding. And here's the point about all of this. Uh, You don't know you're lost if you don't even know where you're going. You don't know you're lost if you don't even know where you're going, right? For Michael Scott, for the Cubs, for me going to that wedding, I, we all knew where we wanted to be going. We all knew where we intended to go. But we were actually lost. And we were not, in fact, going where we thought we were going. Uh, and because we weren't aware we were lost, guess what? We just kept on driving happily until we pulled up to where that counselor or where Siri had told us was the destination. We pulled up, and then it was like the punchline of the joke fell on us like a ton of bricks. You're not where you thought you were going to be. You're not where you thought you were going. Now, already the wheels are probably turning in your head. You know where I'm going with this. That's not just true for our driving, right? It's not just true with Siri advising us how to, how to go on the road, but it happens in our lives every day, right? And much more is on the line in our lives, in our day-to-day lives, in your life. A lot more is on the line than missing a wedding or a baseball game or getting your car wet. Your life's on the line. Your soul is on the line. Uh, your life before you die is on the line. How, how your life plays out is all on the line uh, in real life. And here's where we see this in in Psalm 1, in the passage we're looking at tonight. Remember, this is the preface to the Psalms. So it's like the introduction. It's kind of setting the big picture of all the other songs that are about to come after it. And it's holding before us an anatomy or kind of the how does a spiritual death spiral happen. And then the how does spiritual reawakening happen. How do we die? And how do we come back to life? And this is really a psalm, and I want you to really hear this. This is a psalm about this. Where you want to be and how you think you're going to get there. So that's what brings this psalm really down to earth and close to home. This is a psalm. Psalm 1 is is about the question, where do I most want to be in life and what am I doing to get there? Does that make sense? There's a word way, W-A-Y. There's a word way here in verse 1 and in verse 6. And it's a metaphor. He says uh, in verse 1, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners. Down in verse 6 he says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, 
Now, here's what way means road or path. Like, if you ever said, I got to find a way out of here or show me the way to get there, what we're saying is show me the road or the path to get somewhere. Now, think about that metaphor real quick. If, if he's saying, nor st- these, blessed is the man who doesn't stand in the road of sinners, and then the Lord knows the road of the righteous, he's kind of saying that all of life is, is a journey on a road. And he's saying everybody in this room is, and everybody in the world is on one of two roads, the, the wicked road, wicked avenue, or righteous avenue. And it is our desires, it is my wants, my expectations and hopes and dreams in life that determines which road I'm in. Here's how. How did you end up at RUF tonight? How did you end up at this auditorium? Because you chose to get on very specific roads because you wanted or thought you needed to be here. We take roads to get to where we want or think we need to be. I don't know how many roads there are in Crucis. Let's say five or six hundred and about, if there's 500 roads in Crucis, there's about 496 that you didn't drive on tonight. You only took four, and it's because you wanted or needed to be here tonight with us. We get on roads because we think they're going to get us where we want or need to be. And this psalm says that we do that in our lives too. We take certain roads, we, we turn on certain roads or paths or ways In everyday life, with the decisions that we make, the commitments that we make, um, the reason we take those paths is because we believe they're going to get me where I most want to be. Down that road or that path is the life I want. Here's how it plays out closer to home. We take the path of porn or the path of digital binging whether it's on your phone or on your PlayStation or on your TV or, or wherever. We take the path of purging the food we've eaten. We take the path of cutting our bodies. The path of gossip. The path of getting the applause of others. And why? Here's the surprising thing and the important thing. For instance, we don't take... We don't turn down the path of porn because we love porn. We turn down the path of porn because we love where we, th- where we think it's going to take us. If you talk to anybody, any, any of you, any of us addicted to pornography, ask them, are, do you love porn? And in their, in their truest heart of hearts, they'll say, no, I'm actually disgusted by what I look at. I'm disgusted by it. Um, But I do it because it it promises to take me to a place of intimacy when there's not really any other intimacy or realness or excitement or electricity in my life. What they really are in love with is becoming more alive, not just sex or just porn. Ask somebody why they're um, an obsessive calorie counter. You say, well, how's that working out for you? And they'll be honest with you. They'll say, it's, it's a slavery. It's, it's misery. I feel awful. I don't want to live this way. Then why do you do it? Because how am I going to be, how am I going to be thin? Or how, how's, how are my legs going to be the shape that I want? Or my stomach the shape that I want if I don't do this? 
You say, well, why do you want your stomach to look that way, your legs that way? And we, 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 not those people, but we, the way our hearts work, what we have fallen in love with is we want people's heads to turn when we walk into a room. We have a certain image of the perfect body that we think that if we get that, we've arrived. Then we matter. We're validated. Uh, We measure up. That's what we want. Nobody wants to purge their food. Nobody wants to be an obsessive calorie counter. No one wants to be addicted to working out all the time. But the reason we turn down those roads is because they promise you, just like Michael Scott's Siri promised him, turn right and you'll reach the destination. Look, this is, uh, these patterns, there's something more to it than just, I think, um, porn will bring me to the intimacy, the comfort, the relational stuff that I want in life. Um, once I turn down these roads, it's kind of like a gate closes after you turn down these roads. And it's really, really hard to get back out. Because this psalm shows that there is a regression or a death spiral. There's momentum that starts to happen when we make these decisions and walk down these paths. You see it in, 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 in verse 1. Do you see this regression, the, the death spiral of the wicked? He says... And the first part, um, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the way of sinners, who does not sit, which is really a word that means to dwell or to put down roots, like build a house or make a home in the seat of scoffers. What he's describing is addiction. He's describing this slowly coasting into something, And it becomes more and more familiar and feels more and more like home. And you less and less want to leave it. Because it's normal to you. And and, and listen to this. Like, here's how this makes sense. How many times have you heard on TV the billionaire say, I used to think when I had money that I'd be happy, but I have all the money in the world now and I'm still not happy. I mean, it's almost cliche hearing the celebrity say, Fame isn't all it's cracked up to be because I always wanted to be famous and now I am and I'm miserable. We know this in our brains that certain pathways like fame or attention or money and financial security, though they promise to take our hearts, our souls to a certain place we really want to be, they don't deliver. We know that. You know that by now. But we still do it, right? And that's because there's a momentum, there's a, there's a, we get sucked into these black holes of spiritual death. And it's a really dangerous predicament. And, uh, and here's how, here is the ultimate reason of why we get sucked in. Jeremiah 17 um, is a, a passage that likely, well it's not likely, it is parallel to Psalm 1. Um, likely... Uh, came before Psalm 1 was written. And uh, it, it pulls the curtains back a little bit further than Psalm 1 does and kind of gives us some context for how we so easily uh, point our lives down the counsel of the wicked. Jeremiah 17, um, you know, it has the same imagery of the tree by the water and the leaf not withering and everything else. And it says right after that, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can make sense of it? It's desperately wicked and deceitful above all other characteristics. 
So if, you know, when God looks at our heart, when we look at our hearts, um, the chief characteristic of a human heart is that it lies. It is Siri, um, except the deceitful Siri in your phone that always gets you lost. And just like me on the way to the wedding, you don't even know you're lost until you finally pull up to the destination and you realize, I just missed the big event because I'm here and it's there. My phone deceived me. Will our hearts deceive us? And the scary thing is that you often don't know you're lost or you're dead until it's way too late. Until you have already pulled up to that destination and realized, holy moly, this is not at all where I thought I was going. And you're already addicted to that substance or that those images or that, that pattern or that habit that you'd formed. And so our hearts are warped by sin and they get us all the way to the point of, a, of what he calls it being in the seat of scoffers, which is, I think, the scariest place a human being could ever be. Because a scoffer or a mocker is someone who is so entrenched in their ways. They're so comfortable. Life is so familiar with them that they're like the people driving the wrong way down the interstate who are giving the finger to all the people on the other side of the barrier going the correct way. And though they are the only one on the interstate going the wrong way, they're flicking everybody else off saying, you idiots, you're going the wrong way. Like in in an extreme case, this is like your Richard Dawkins, your Sam Harris's, your your Bill Mars. Like they're just speeding down the wrong way and so arrogant and so, so convinced of their ways that everybody else is wrong and they're mocking. That's how deceived they are. Now, here's, here's the, here's the punchline. If God doesn't change our hearts, if God doesn't change our hearts, you're left with a faulty GPS that can't lead you to life. Can't you lead you to the life you want? Can't lead you to the life you need? Can't you lead you to any kind of life? It can't take you where it's promising to take you. And this is how all of us were born. The GPS, your conscience, your heart, your hopes, your desires, the GPS at the core of your being is faulty. And until God, or unless God changes that and gives you a new one that works, you will never end up where you think you're going. And the, and the, the evidence of this is this picture, he says, of chaff. Like a, it's like a tumbleweed in the March winds in Las Cruces or El Paso. It has no roots. It's dead. It's weightless. It's hollow. It is captive to whichever way the winds blow. If the wind's blowing this way, it goes that way. But as soon as the winds change, because it has no roots and no weight, it changes too. And so life, if your chaff feels directionless, purposeless, fruitless, disoriented, exhausting. Um, your life is one, one successive parade of fads. You're really into this because you think it's going to root you 
and make you alive and then it doesn't. And so you're, you attach yourself to this new thing that's really going to root you and, and bring, you, bring you alive and it doesn't. And so you drop that and you go to this other thing and your family, your friends are always like, what gives? Like you're kind of always into this new stuff trying to make it save you, but it can't. I remember what it's like to feel like chaff. It was my, the tail end of my college years where I really began to realize, like, this is what I feel like. Like, this is, you know, this is, this feels like what's going on with me. To not be rooted, to begin to realize that my life's not heading anywhere, to begin to count how many times I have confidently thought I knew where I was going in life only to end up at a dead end. I remember what it was like to not know the living God. I knew a lot about Him. I'd heard about Him. Um, I'd been so blessed by a family, by churches that had taught me about Him, which was a huge leg up and a huge uh, lighthouse to call me back home later on in my life. But I remember what it was like to not know Him, to be terrified of Him, to begin to be cynical about Christianity altogether. This doesn't, this, whatever, whatever. It's just a bunch of like behavior, like be better, follow these rules. I remember what that was like, and it was awful. It was awful, and it was scary. And that's the anatomy of spiritual destruction that Psalm 1 describes. And no matter who you are in this room, that's your story. Because if you're a Christian, this is, this is describing the way you were born. Left to your own strength, wisdom, power, insight... Decisions, that's what you would be. Dead, rootless, directionless, fruitless, hollow chaff that will be judged. And if you're not a Christian, can you see how the Bible gets you? Not to shame you, not to rub your face in it, but is this at least encouraging in the sense that somebody else gets what my life is like? Ah, Finally, someone has put words to what I feel every day. Well, if that's you, keep listening because Psalm 1 doesn't just leave you stuck with a diagnosis. It shows us the most beautiful answer to our problem ever. And it begins with this question. So, if you are chaff, if you are on the road of the wicked or the righteous, that's what you want in life. And you begin to say, well, maybe this isn't taking me where I thought it was. Well, then how do you make a U-turn? How do you change? How, can you, how do you come to God? How do you come alive? How do you grow? How do you bear fruit in season? How do you find water for your soul, for your heart, for your spirituality, for your life? How do you begin to put roots down and stop blowing all over the place? And how can you know where you're going And that you absolutely will get to the intended destination. How can you change that? Well, the first thing is by looking in the mirror and recognizing and admitting that you can't change yourself. We are talking about the deepest reaches of a human being's core. The essence of who you are. You can't get to that place. Only God can. And so true change begins by admitting that it's not just that I have done some bad things in my life, but at the core of my being, I want to drive down the paths that will take me to destruction. 
because I'm so deceived I think they're my life. And you have to admit uh, to the Lord, to yourself, to others, I am wrong. What I thought was making me alive is actually killing me. And I need nothing less than God's mercy. I need grace. I need him to give me. I need him to push reset on my life because I've made a mess of it. And you might say, okay, but wait, Ben, there's nothing in this passage that says anything about mercy or grace. Oh, but there is. Because Psalm 1 is not just a picture of spiritual death and decay apart from God. It is also a picture of spiritual resurrection or awakening, coming alive, coming back alive. And we see how in Israel's story, and that's what's in the background of Psalm 1 that I want to go over just very, very briefly so that you understand. And before we kind of, in a lightning fast way, rehearse that history, let me tell you the principle up front. And this is true for Israel's story, Israel's life, and your life. Here it is. Listen to this. You only become a tree planted by streams of living water, by transplantation. You only become spiritually alive. You only are renewed or resurrected by transplantation. That's the only way to spiritual fruitfulness. Okay? You've got to get that. This is not a technique book in Psalm 1 of how you can fix yourself and be spiritually fruitful and productive again. Or missions minded or more dedicated to the Lord. That's not what this is. This is saying you can only become a pic- this picture of a living tree by s- streams of living water by God plucking you up from where you are dead now and transplanting you and bringing you back to life. Here's the deal. Israel's problem was that they never went down the right path. Okay? Israel never chose the right path. God said, don't do this or don't do that or don't do that. And they did that and that and that. God said, be this and do that because I love you. I've redeemed you. And they didn't do it. They didn't care. They ran away from the Lord. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. As as the hymn, Come Thou Fount, says, that was Israel's story and our story. They were God's chosen people. And they regularly chose to run away from Him. And so these Old Testament promises of God... um, Saving and sustaining and growing his people in the wilderness was not, not this, Israel, because you're such a good person, because you've made such good decisions, because you've chosen the wise path, I hereby will bless you and reward you. God didn't start his promises that way. He started his promises like, I will be your God and you will be my people, or I will make you numerous. I will grow you. You will be fruitful. You will bear fruit. He he started those promises with this preface. Because I am merciful and a gracious God, I will reward you. I will preserve you. Israel didn't deserve the promised land. God plucked them out of death in Egypt and planted them in the promised land. They didn't deserve being returned from exile in Babylon because of their own sin. God plucked them up and transplanted them back in Israel by grace. We don't deserve to be healthy, rooted, growing, sturdy trees. God transplants you there. 
plucks you up out of your death at his own initiative, his own power, his own grace, his own cost, and plants you right smack beside the river of eternal and infinite grace. They, Israel, was like, were like chaff. We were like chaff. And God, at his own initiative, resurrects dead people and plants them beside water. Now, if chaff is ever going to have roots again and, and, and endure through the hard, dry droughts of life, it has to be planted by water. It has to be made alive again. And that's exactly what God has done for Israel. That's what Psalm 1 is a picture of. But it doesn't just look back at Israel's past. It points forward to our present and our future. That God has transplanted us beside canals. This isn't just, look, there aren't river, the point of this psalm is there aren't streams in the desert. There aren't rivers in the desert. Duh. And so this isn't a picture of like, oh, God found a, oh, cool, there's a lake here in the middle of the desert. I'm going to put you by that. This is the picture of a farmer strategically, diligently engineering and planning a system of canals. This is Las Cruces. We have water because we have canals. So God dug canals in the desert and he planted Israel in a very strategic location so that they would bear fruit in season, not continually, but when it was time, which means there was many seasons where you didn't see fruit. Same for the Christian. He's saying the Christian bears fruit in season at harvest time and it is a plant that is well taken care of so that it does not wither when really hard seasons of life come your way. Why? Because your roots are submerged in a never-ending stream of divine grace, favor, mercy, and love. That is the story of many of you in this room because God heard your cries. Because God, at his own cost and initiative, plucked you up from your death and planted you beside the Lord Jesus Christ. The very last thing we have to talk about is this. Why did God do this? I've just spent a good bit of time telling you Israel never deserved a single movement or flinch from God, and we don't either. Why did God do it? Well, that's who Psalm 1, or that's what Psalm 1 ultimately points to. We read a little while ago when Aben read from Isaiah 53, Jesus died the death of the wicked. He died the death of the scoffer. He died the death of the mocker. Jesus is, in a sense, he's the car that was driven into the lake. He's the one who ended up at the wrong destination, a place of wrath, a place of justice, a place of curse, a place of payment. Because Jesus took the consequences, the responsibility, and the condemnation for our hearts. Deceitful, deceptive, delusional, um, and outrageously unholy. He took that upon himself. And so when it says in verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous, that is exactly what happened to Jesus. He did not stand in the day of judgment. He did not join the assembly of the righteous. Isaiah 53 says, 
the exact opposite. He was cast out in his day of judgment so that you might be brought in. He did not stand so that you and I might stand. He did not come into the assembly of the righteous so that you and I might be brought in in grace. And that is why the Lord, as he says at the end of this psalm, knows, which means loves, delights in, celebrates the way, the road of the righteous. You are on the road of the righteous if you are in Jesus Christ. If you're alive, that's your life because he turned his car down the road of the wicked to take upon himself all of the consequences that come with making decisions to run from God repeatedly. And he gave you, he didn't just take the consequences, he gave you the consequences of being the righteous man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, who doesn't sit in the seat of mockers, but who makes his delight the law of the Lord, who meditates on the law, which wasn't just the Ten Commandments, the law was the Torah, the law was the first five books of the Bible, which is the story of God rescuing and redeeming his people from, his, from Egypt. Jesus' delight was the Torah, the law of the Lord. Day and night, he meditated. He saturated himself in that. That is what he gives to you. He was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might take all of the fruit, the prosperity, the benefit, the promises of the righteous man in Psalm 1. They would come to us as the curse goes to him. This is what Psalm 1 is about. Where are you? And do we need to call out for God to pluck us up out of our death and plant us beside streams of living water in the Lord Jesus Christ? He doesn't just put this here to shame you and to say, oh, I'm either dead and I'm screwed or I'm alive and I should be happy. This, my friends, is an invitation to the person of God, the farmer who knows how to make a dead plant flourish forever. That is what is held out before us here today, not just diagnosis, but cure and an invitation. That is what the rest of the Psalms do as well. And if you are a Christian and have been transplanted and put beside streams of living water, what does it look like to participate with the farmer who takes diligent care of you? It's a picture of meditation. It's a picture of soaking up the water from your roots that you have been planted by, which is gospel water. The law is a story of redemption that he talks about here. It is soaking up through sustained, just marinating in the person of God and what he's done. That is how we grow. That is how we bear fruit in season. That is how your leaf, your life, doesn't wither, doesn't fall apart. When the day of drought comes, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, well, we thank you that we're not left at a place where we're to read Psalm 1 and say, oh, I've got to get my life better because I'm on the wrong road. I've made bad decisions. I've ended up in a lake. We thank you that you have lived Psalm 1, both parts of it. You have given us the results and the consequences of a, of a well, of a perfectly lived life before your Father. And you have taken upon yourself the consequences of a horribly lived life. And you have taken that judgment upon yourself so that we might be made alive and planted beside you 
streams of living water, that we might bear fruit to you, to your Father, to the Spirit for your glory. So help us understand these things. Bring us to life or bring us to greater life in you, we ask in, his, in your name. Amen.